politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen to the one and only CR Podcast here at CR Podcast, Blaze Media, Thursday, a new month, April 1st. And yes, I wish it was April Fool's Day. I wish that was a real thing. I wish this was all a sick joke. But the reality is, a year later, we have to wake up and understand that we've been living in pure hell for a full year. I can't believe this is the year-long anniversary of the worst month in American history, April 2020. But you know what? When that month began... As bad as things were, we couldn't have imagined on April 1st, at least in most places in the country, that government would successfully criminalize our breathing without wearing a Chinese burqa, and they'd be doing it a year later with no end in sight. So later today, we're going to have a special guest on to talk about where are the lawsuits. We're going to have a lawyer from Connecticut to who who is litigating um, a mass case, a couple other things. There are some COVID fascist uh, cases he's taken on. Um, real patriot fighting for our rights. Where are the lawsuits? Is there any hope? How do we file lawsuits? Again, we need to throw everything we can in the mix. Throw everything we have at tyranny. And one of the things I admire about the left is they fight with all their might. When they say this is the moral thing to do, they will harness all of the institutions they have, which is pretty much everything around, to fight it. Hence, we're seeing with the Georgia election law reforms, today's opening day in baseball, Major League Baseball, is threatening to pull the All-Star game from Atlanta. This is the way we need to fight. This is the way America needs to be. The other side has already done this. Will we do it back to them? And half the country that we supposedly control start banning them, start boycotting them, using every lever of political and legal power we have to fight them. Problem is we don't. Think about it. A year later, do you even have conservative talk radio fully fighting COVID fascism and the mask masochism the way we should be? I certainly don't see that. I'm not seeing that at all. Now, I was thinking, maybe there is a little bit of hope. Because there was a part of me that has been saying, we've never had such masochism in our life. But the truth be told, we did actually have, during the Spanish flu, we did have mask mandates in certain parts of the country. And, you know, they did end. So maybe there is hope. As much as we always say we've never had a country this insane, it's truly hard to imagine it, but even with the godly values of America a hundred years ago, they were pushing this stuff. But I think the difference is that back then they realized it didn't work. And once they realized it didn't work, they got off of it. They got off of it. This is from the LA Times, February 1st, 1919. 
Dr. N.J. Rice, chairman of the Board of Health, states that influenza condition is about the same as last week with a number of new cases, but with less fatalities than other cities of the same size. Dr. Rice yesterday received a report on the influenza situation in the state and also the means which have ta- been taken to stop the epidemic. For the most part, it indicates that up to the present time, the physicians are about as much baffled as ever before, working heroically to abate the progress of the influenza as much as possible. The report shows that many, or rather most, of the precautions, such as wearing flu masks, rigid closing of schools, theaters, churches, have been of no avail in checking the epidemic. (laughs) Nothing new under the sun. It's unbelievable. The report reveals some peculiar facts, especially in the comment on the methods of preventing the spread of the epidemic. As an instance of this, it was learned by actual figures that those cities which did not take strict precautions as New York had a lower death rate than cities like San Francisco, which took nearly every kind of precaution. It also appears that the flu mask was a very little, if any, advantage, particularly because people who wore them at all laid them aside in their home or in their social gatherings where they should have worn them and kept them on when out in the open air when it was less necessary to have them on. <laughs> also, it was learned that in the San Francisco hospitals where nurses all wore the mask, 70% of the nurses contracted influenza. There you go, folks. There you go. Bakersfield Morning Echo, February 9th, 1919. Title, Expert Flays Flu Mask. It is foolish to have a law in a city requiring the wearing of flu masks. The order can't be thoroughly carried out as only a few Persons know anything at all about wearing them correctly. If masks were going to have been successful preventative measures, New York would certainly have adopted them. It's funny, New York was the more uh, pro-liberty one at the time. Um, This is a statement made last evening by Dr. E.J. Banzoff, Assistant Director of the Department of Preventative Medicines of the New York Health Department, the discoverer of the process that is now used to purify diphtheria, antioxidant, and one of the leading medical authorities in the country. Um, The mask tends to keep people at home when they need to be out in the sunlight, and the flu situation is nothing to be alarmed at. The extremes of temperatures here is largely responsible for it. Every cold or cough isn't a flu. When a city gets frightened enough to use masks, necessarily for the mask is um, I think this is cut off actually Uh, I don't have the full article here Um, but anyway he talks about how they didn't work and we just didn't learn our lesson there were, there were even articles in the St. Louis Globe about flu masks causing crime, you know, because people running around with masks. We're actually seeing that now. There's another article here from Echoes of the Streets in Seattle.
and may be guessed that there is some additional irritation in those Pacific Coast cities in which the people were masked in the streets by public authorities since the assembled doctors of the country at Chicago have declared that flu masks are absurd and useless, though the irritation is mingled with the satisfaction of those who protected from the first. The influenza mask will probably not be resumed, and the inhabitants can preserve the newspaper pictures of themselves photographed on the streets and the crowds looking absurd as the doctors <laughs> designated it. George Douglas writes in the San Francisco Chronicle, paraphrasing a familiar hymn, We shall know each other better when the masks have rolled away. And prevalence of the disguise did much to conceal one's identity from one's most intimate friends, unless their memory was good for eyes, the only conspicuous feature left exposed. A resident of Seattle wrote, If Plato and Aristotle and some others among our ancient friends who lived over 2,000 years ago should rise up to find themselves in enlightened America in the midst of a modern city of 4,000 inhabitants, most of whom were parading the streets in mass. I'm sure they would feel that they've been cast on an island in some remote part of the world where the natives were still blindly worshiping an unknown god by decorating themselves with some symbol of fetishism. <laughs> I mean, folks, it's, it's kind of interesting how there's nothing new under the sun. But rather than learning our lessons, we double down on it. And a year later, when we have the same observations, it doesn't seem to matter. They're still continuing with it. Now, what's crazy now is they're promoting more panic porn of cases rising. But there's a real concern now that this is going to go on forever. Because one thing is clear, and I want to make this very clear. Because we forget so easily. A year ago, we were talking about the fact that how could government do this to people? How could you lock down, mask, every human being is suspect of having a virus? How could you do that? We've never done that in history. And somehow the notion was that the virus is so dangerous because it's so transmissible but also problematic enough to enough people that it would overrun the hospitals. That was the only valid argument ever given. Now, mind you, this never worked. But even if it did, the only argument that you could somehow violate constitutional rights was the overrunning of the hospitals. But no matter what happens henceforth between natural infection and the vaccines, you might have the virus percolate here and there, but nobody under any understanding of the virus could look you in the eyes today and say that any hospital will be overrun. Now the goal is eradication of any cases while we're mass testing for a virus that we've never mass tested before. So part of the concern is this. Coronaviruses were gone for a year, right? The coronavirus colds, just like um, RSV and the flu. Rhinoviruses, typical cold, were still circulating. Now there's news that HCOV OC43 and NK63 are surging. They're coming back. There's a lot of literature out there showing that SARS tests could interact with HCOVs, common cold coronaviruses. 
this is particularly a problem among children who are less prone to get SARS-CoV-2, but are more prone to get coronavirus colds. So if you sit and swab every kid every day while coronavirus colds are circulating, just from those colds alone, you could likely get some false positives. And they could keep this going. You know, in my home state of Maryland, they just announced. They passed a bill in the legislature. Department of Health allowing them to have a two-year plan of testing, contact tracing, and vaccination to prevent and mitigate and monitor the spread of COVID. The spread of any virus. Even if you believe that this is much stronger for, especially for elderly people than the flu. But now, if we are going to continue it at this level, with this many people immune, then there is quite literally nothing stopping the government from doing this every flu season for any virus that they detect. The beauty of something being unprecedented is that it can't happen again or won't happen very often, maybe once in 100 years. But now that they've moved away from flattening the curve to save the hospitals to mass testing with faulty tests, and even after everyone's vaccinated or naturally infected, we find notional cases, false cases, just the existence of those cases means they could keep this going. This could happen forever. And remember, there is this concern that this virus does become endemic, meaning you are immune to serious symptoms, but, you know, it becomes the fifth coronavirus cold. It's still a theory out there. It sure does seem like this was created in a lab. I was speaking with Dr. Ryan Cole yesterday about this. And, you know, we're, we're just talking about the fact that it, uh, it harms men more. He was really getting into the nitty-gritty of the way it, it latches onto the cells. Really does seem kind of too perfect. So who's to say this won't last forever in a certain capacity? Now, again, it's not a problem. You know, it's funny. This B117 UK variant. You know, in the UK, they have nothing going on now. In Texas, that's the predominant circulation. Yet positives have been down almost 50% there. So that's a fraud. And then we have the sick fact that one year later, government is still denying, censoring, and blocking treatment for Americans. Again, I said yesterday, I had a desperate email to me from someone whose mother is 74 with health conditions, had the vaccine, ironically. Four weeks later, it developed a, developed a fever, tested positive. He's having trouble getting her prescriptions. They have no treatment for her. Do you know that the World Health Organization's data on this shows 81% mortality, uh, a reduction in mortality from ivermectin, yet they still won't recommend it. This is maddening. Now, folks, some of you might be wondering how I get through the day 
without just spontaneously combusting from a heart attack. One thing is I've started drinking wine every night, just a little bit. Down in Argentina, they have vineyards up at 9,000 feet. They make world-class, like I'm saying 90-point wine there. But now they're actually under attack by these radical mobs, these leftists. They have these leftist uh, communist mobs there in, in Latin America. They're, they're actually seizing their land, burning down buildings, damaging equipment. And, of course, the government's not doing anything because they're embedded with the radicals there. But anyway, people are snapping up these wines while they still can. They taste incredible with notes of blackberry, dark cherry, leather, smoke. They do great with barbecuing steaks. Um, my wife always loves cooking steak with wine. Today, the guys over at conservativewine.com just got another special shipment of these wines in. And they want to share it with you, my audience. So again, if you want to get 50% off the best tasting wine in the world, also 50% off the shipping, no need for promo code, visit conservativewine.com and show these winemakers some love. That's conservativewine.com. Again, we need to create a parallel universe and support only those companies that support our values. So I want to get back to this story before we have our guest on that, again, as we mentioned, the whole idea with vaccines and masks being um, promoted as experimental under an emergency use authorization, one of the stipulations is that there is no other way of treating it. But there is. Their own meta-analysis, they just came out with it. They updated their, they have a guidance on therapeutics and COVID-19. They updated it yesterday, Wednesday. Under ivermectin, they show an 81% drop in mortality. 64% decrease in hospitalizations. Nonetheless, they say their confidence level is low and they refuse to endorse it. They say it could be harmful. Do you know that there have been a total of 49 studies, 27 of them RCTs, randomized controlled trials, showing that ivermectin works, 80% improvement when used early, 89% when used as prophylaxis, even 50% in its late stages. Yet they're treating this as somehow experimental. It's been dispensed billions of times. It's been deemed one of the safest drugs around. You know, um, William C. Campbell and Satoshi Amura were the ones who discovered this as the cure to uh, river blindness in Africa. They won the Nobel Prize for Physiology in 2015 for discovering that. The Nobel Assembly put out the following statement, you know, when they awarded them. They said, today... Avermectin, derivative ivermectin, is used in all parts of the world that are plagued by parasitic diseases. Ivermectin is highly effective against a range of parasites, has limited side effects, and is freely available across the globe. The importance of ivermectin for improving the health and well-being of millions of individuals with river blindness and lymphatic uh, filariosis, primarily in the poorest regions of the world, is an immeasurable treatment is so successful that these diseases are on the verge of eradication, which would be a major feat in medical history of humankind. <laughs> we caught them around the balls. Millions of people. Oh, but suddenly for this, it's dangerous. Do you know that the World Health Organization, every year they publish what's called a model list of essential medicines? 
in their latest one, 2019, they have as one of their top, these are like the safest and best medicines around. Under anti-infective medicines, they have nothing, none other than ivermectin, three milligrams. WHO's website to this day. Truly unbelievable. More studies have come out in vitamin D. Pulled analysis of three studies, randomized and placebo-controlled studies involving 49,000 people, found that vitamin D is especially important in blocking COVID-critical illness with people with dark skin because they um, don't absorb the vitamin D as well, naturally overweight people and the elderly. Another study of aspirin from George Washington University published in the Journal of Anesthesia and uh, Analgesia showed that those given aspirin immediately in the hospital were 44% likely to go on a ventilator, 43% less likely to need to go to the ICU, and 47% less likely to die in the hospital. And again, this was taken in the hospital. You can imagine if on the first day you don't feel well or you test positive, you take an aspirin. Vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin, ivermectin, doxycycline, several other things that Dr. McCullough and, and Cole mentioned. Again, I mean, I'm not a doctor, so you know, when you talk about this full array of cocktails, you have to make sure you're taking the right thing based on your health status, the interaction with different medications. But this is what we need a government for, a public health sector to do what you know medical professionals, and they're not doing. So to this day, people are still getting it, because the vaccines are kind of funny. And um, they uh, they let let them out to dry. So here we are, a year later, when government has no proof that anything they have been doing works, no proof no backstop to not doing this any other time for any other pathogen. They don't have to show any evidentiary standards. Nothing. They could do whatever they want to us. There is some good news in Missouri. They did pass, in the Senate at least, a bill blocking COVID vaccine passports. But again, we have to make sure we're not going on to the next battle type of thing, which is important, but ignoring the current battle. Are the masks fully gone in Missouri in all the localities? No, they're not. So that's where we are today, a year later. Now, as I introduce our special guest today, I just want to return a little bit to the border before we come back to the COVID fascism and the Constitution, rights, civil rights, lawsuits, because you're going to see how they tie in. You see, I got a note last night from my agent friend who's on the river in the Rio Grande. And he has the preliminary numbers for March. Today's April 1st. It takes about a week for CBP to publish their data. And their preliminary numbers show 173,000 apprehensions at the border in one month. I looked back to all the monthly data I could find dating back to FY2000. 
And I believe this might be the most on record. It's the most since 2000, unless there were some years in the 90s where there were more, but just eyeballing the annual numbers, that would be pretty hard. If it is, it's about the same. We're talking about record apprehensions, not to mention the fact that there were 40,000 recorded gotaways, and I've already told you that they're only recording a fraction of them, particularly in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, So we're talking about easily well over 200,000 people. Now, as I mentioned before, we no longer have a legitimate government because that is what they're there to protect us from. They don't. And by the way, just just as an aside, you know, it's funny you have all these people um, trying to tour the facilities. I want a tour of the facility. Well, what about a tour of the ranchers at the Texas border? Well, why is it always concern about the care of foreign nationals? If you care about them, then how about you go down and open up a missionary in Central America? But if you're an elected official representing the United States of America, the government's resources are of the people of the United States. And your concern on any issue, and most importantly the border, is how that affects the people of the United States. Not those doing the invading and then joining MS-13. But that's just a pet peeve of mine. Now, how does this tie back to COVID? There's a lot we could talk about with regards to the border. I do want to have Tom Homan on at some point in the next week. I'm going to try to get him on, former ICE director. Um, But think about it. We have been told that under the guise of alleviating the burden on hospitals, which we've moved on from, You don't have any civil rights. Government could do whatever it wants, any means to achieve that end. Okay? Pandemic. You can't have people moving around. Well, what is the greatest movement of humanity? Migration. Because you're coming from all different parts of the world where there are all different sorts of epidemiological curves. Right? I mean, we've talked about this a lot, how... The virus is going to virus within a given geographical area. But what happens if you bring in hundreds of thousands of people from Brazil, Venezuela, Ecuador, Central America, Mexico, and then even some extracontinentals? Well, what happens then? Well, the good news is if they're coming from Africa, they're probably taking ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. So they're not going to get the virus or spread it. But what happened then? The same courts that are telling us to talk to the hand that we have no standing, we have no valid argument, the government could do whatever they want. Somehow, they take all the lawsuits from the illegals and say, hey, they're asylum seekers. You better let them in. COVID doesn't exist. So I wanted you to understand that in the context of this discussion, we have a record flow during a time of this pandemic where we have a record limitation on domestic human movement of citizens. We have record movement from illegal aliens. Catch and release has turned into catch and bus. They get placed straight on buses. So where are the lawsuits? In a litigious society like we are, How are we here a year later and government could 
say COVID with a noun, a verb, and a command, and poof, our constitutional rights disappear. They don't have to show any standard of evidence to narrowly tailor what they're doing, to show it's the least restrictive means, to show there's no other alternatives. Every single study has shown that stay-at-home orders have not correlated with a greater result, much less proved causation. Yet, there's just nowhere to nowhere to turn. So I'm trying to turn to some of the few civil rights attorneys that are trying to fight COVID fascism in the courts to try to get some advice on where we can go. I know a lot of you are emailing me from school districts, even in states where they took off the mask mandate. And in Texas, they even said localities can't do it. And nonetheless, they're saying, screw off, we're doing it. Uh, we're following CDC guidelines. So with us today... It's a very special guest. Brian Festa is a civil rights attorney in Connecticut. And this is very personal to him because he has a son who was severely vaccine injured. And Brian has really been fighting this particular issue of medical freedom. He founded Connecticut Freedom Alliance in 2019 with his business partner, Don Jolly. Um, he also has an important group, We the Patriots USA, and they have a Patriot Support Network. And you guys could go to www.wethepatriotsusa.org where they try to get people connected for lawsuits, you know, get them connected with attorneys and try to collect donations to pay for these legal expenses. Brian himself has been involved in several important cases in Connecticut dealing with mass mandates on children in school, dealing with you know parents in divorce situations that are losing custody over being caught not wearing a mask out, outside. So I figured we should try to speak with him and get a sense of what is he seeing that's working, that's not working, what advice he has. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure, well, you heard my whole... Uh, Speech there. Now now our audience wants to hear from you. All right. You're a lawyer. You've been dealing with civil rights issues. Why is it that 12 months later, it appears that the courts refuse to ask questions of the state? Hey, like, if this is so amazing that it works, that it's so strong, it could combat privacy rights, which, again, you know— there's a lot of constitutional rights being infringed upon, but if you're uh, a liberal that supports the current case law, it's an even stronger case. If you just use Roe v. Wade, um, you know, that you have a right, even if it affects the life of a fetus, you have your own personal bodily integrity. That's what they say. So here, well, you know, where's the evidence that any of this helps? Oh, whoops, 12 months later, you're saying I have to do it because it will spread. But if it worked, we wouldn't be in this situation three waves later. How come courts aren't asking this question, and are there signs that maybe things are changing? Well, I'll start with the first part of your question. Um, I, <laughs> it's not an easy answer. So in, in large part, it depends on where you are, right, as with many other uh, issues, where you are in the country. 
Um, a perfect example is we had a decision that was issued just this past Monday, uh, March 29th, Casey v. Lamont, governor, uh, case filed against Governor Ned Lamont, in which the Supreme Court of Connecticut ruled that the governor's uh, exercise of his emergency powers um, was uh, authorized by the legislature and that the legislature's grant of authority, this broad authority to the governor, did not violate the separation of powers doctrine found in our Constitution. Contrast that with a decision that just came out, um, I believe, yesterday from the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, in which they found that the governor had exceeded his uh, statutory authority. They didn't rule on the constitutional question, but the statute in Wisconsin only allows the executive orders to continue for 60 days after the declaration is made unless the legislature grants further authority, which they did not do. So all of his executive orders subsequent to the first 60 days they found were unlawful. In Connecticut, it's six months, and they allowed or they said it was allowable for the legislature just to allow the governor to renew that. Um, he renewed it twice since his initial de declaration, um, and he's renewed it again uh, just recently. We're now going to May 20th is the latest extension. They have not ruled on the latest ones uh, that just happened this year, and that's where our case comes in. So we have a case uh, challenging the school mask mandate in Connecticut. So one of my organizations, as you mentioned, is the Connecticut Freedom Alliance. Uh, and what we did is filed a lawsuit back in August of last year against the State Department of Education and Miguel Cardona, who at the time was the Connecticut Commissioner of Education. He's now the U.S. Secretary of Education. Um, but he remains a defendant in our case, and we later added Governor Ned Lamont as a defendant in our case. So uh, that case is ongoing, but it will be um, influenced or informed by the decision in Casey that just came out the other day. Uh, we have supplemental briefs that are going to be filed on April 12th, and then there'll be um, you know, a final decision that will be rendered after that, that you know, if it's not in our favor, we'll have the chance to appeal. But to, to answer, I guess, the, uh, again, the first part of your question, um, you know, why hasn't this happened? Well, it's because of something that I can point to in the Casey v. Lamont decision, something that the Connecticut Supreme Court said very clearly. They quoted uh, Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts in his decision, South Bay United Pentecostal Church versus Newsom, which was uh, the case brought against, uh, obviously, Governor Newsom in California last year in 2020. And the quote that they repeated twice in their decision from Justice Roberts is, the precise question of when restrictions on particular social activities should be lifted during the pandemic is a dynamic and fact-intensive matter subject to reasonable disagreement when officials, elected officials, undertake to act in areas fraught with medical and scientific uncertainties, their latitude must be especially broad. And what I found consistently is that the courts say in many of these jurisdictions uh, that, well, the governor is entitled to rely on the opinion of the medical and scientific experts. Because now when you think of this logically, Daniel, from a logical Very standpoint, scary. If, we remove, if we remove ourselves, <laughs> yeah, if we remove ourselves from the pandemic, if you just look at that as a, as a logical proposition that a governor is not a physician, a governor is not an infectious disease specialist, a governor is not an OSHA specialist, a governor is not a scientist, a research scientist. Most of these governors are not. 
So shouldn't they be entitled to rely on the opinions of the experts they've surrounded themselves with? Sure. Or should they be required, should, is it reasonable to require them to dig through thousands of pages of studies and draw their own conclusions? So, so, so but, 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 but yeah. Brian, Brian I, I, and I understand that, and, and, that's, and that's the big problem. I mean, that quote from John Roberts is, is scary beyond belief, and that's really where they're coming from. But I, I guess what I would say is, and, and, and let me know if there's any angle for a lawsuit from this angle, is they're starting from the state. Well, I don't know what to do. Well, that's if you're dealing with wildfires, you're dealing with trees, you're dealing with land even. When you're dealing with people's bodies, okay, you have to wear something on your nose and mouth, whether you have a disability, whether you are in pain, whether you have trouble breathing, whether there's any evidence that you even have the virus, whether there's any evidence the thing helps. Um, don't we typically in constitutional law start the other way around? You have rights, right? You know, well, isn't the government allowed? To, isn't the governor allowed to, you know, do what he wants? Well, it, am I not allowed to do what I want as an individual? Okay, government comes in; they have an interest. Now, don't we typically have strict scrutiny? And that means that even when the government's purpose is legitimate and substantial, like we say in Shelton v. v. Tucker. That purpose cannot be pursued by means that broadly stifle fundamental personal liberties when the end can be more narrowly achieved. And doesn't that force some sort of discovery where we're like, okay, that's the type of thing you might say 12 months ago, but now we see it spreads no matter what you do. We see that so many people already got it. You can't use the police powers to quarantine to indefinitely believe every human being is a problem. We've never done that before. Um, we have anti-discrimination law, right? Where we, you have to, again, um, you can't discriminate based on health status, suspect someone of the health status. You can't violate their, uh, healthcare privacy to ask them about their stuff. Um, then you have the emergency use authorization where they're making you wear a medical device and, you know, the WHO has an entire list of problems with masks that you have to weigh, you know, detriments. So we know that, you know, they have a list of detriments. So how come there is no effort to do what we typically do in court, which is have a balancing test and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, let's take your example with children in schools. You have a lawsuit on that. So where is the data showing that children are even at risk more than any pathogen of any year that they've been alive? Number two, that their primary vectors have spread. Number three, that masks made a difference at all in school. We see from Norway and Sweden and several counties in America, it really didn't. It's just kids aren't a problem. Um, masks didn't work for adults, so it's not like they're working more for kids. It's just kids aren't a vector of spread. And then balancing that against all of the known, I mean, especially with childhood development and learning. And it's like, I mean, typically I find myself opposing all this stuff, you know, getting in the way of a state to do vital interests based on BS notional rights. But is there no, I know I threw a lot at you. I threw a lot of different statutes and laws. What are some of the strongest cases of standing and lines of arguments that you see based on your experience so far? Well, um, you know, the first thing I, I, I want to just point to is your, your question about why this um, 
why this is happening, why there isn't this sort of strict scrutiny. You're absolutely correct. When a fundamental right is removed, a constitutional right, whether it's in the state constitution, the federal constitution, there must be a compelling government interest, which you, you also refer to as a substantial government interest. And first you have to show that, and you have to show that the government is achieving it by the least restrictive means. So you're, you're entirely correct about that. But COVID sort of changed everything in a lot of ways. They said, you know, this is such an immediate threat to health and safety um, that in many ways I've seen that kind of strict scrutiny go out the window. Um, and, and that's alarming to me, as it is to sure. you, very, very alarming. Um, we had filed an emergency injunction. So this is, again, our school mask lawsuit in Connecticut. We had filed a motion for an emergency injunction to say masks are not only ineffective, but they're harming our children. This is an emergency. Thousands of children in Connecticut are being imminently harmed or have a threat of imminent harm, and so that we need the court to step in and put an injunction. Well, back on November 2nd, the court denied that motion, and what the judge said, and, and I'm just going to, I'm reading it, I'm looking at the decision right now. The judge said, a year ago, you could have stopped anyone on the street and they would have told you that masks, gloves, hand washing, and distance are all ways to reduce the spread of disease. The court could have taken judicial notice of it without even hearing evidence. That is a far cry from what is in front of the court now, a claim that mask wearing is so dangerous to children that it must be stopped at once because it is, quote, a recipe for medical disaster. That claim in front of this court has not been proved. There is no emergency danger to children from wearing masks in schools. Indeed, there is very little evidence of harm at all in a wide-ranging medical consensus that it is safe. They did not require the state to prove that it's safe. We provided over a thousand pages of documents, many of wow. which were peer-reviewed studies from medical and scientific journals showing the ineffective of masks at preventing things like the flu, the spread of the transmission of the flu that's been studied for years and years and years. We also presented four expert witnesses, included a including two child psychiatrists, actually, uh, and, the, and the one that they allowed to testify on the subject matter, because the other one they disqualified, was Dr. Mark McDonald from Los Angeles. He's one of the frontline doctors. You may be familiar with him. He's you know, he's been treating children and adolescents for years and years and years, and he has seen the impact um, of mask wearing on children. He testified to that. They did not accept his testimony. So we presented evidence, but be just with that one stroke of the pen, wide-ranging medical consensus that it is safe, that was enough to eliminate everything that we presented. Now, now the case isn't over. This is why I still mm -hmm. have hope. So the second part of your question was, do you see anything that's giving us hope across the country or even in Connecticut, I suppose? I do, because this emergency injunction, we have not had the chance yet because the decision hasn't gone final. The whole case decision hasn't gone final. We haven't had the chance to appeal it yet. We do intend to appeal this decision to show that we provided sufficient evidence, and we are hopeful that the appellate court or possibly the Connecticut Supreme Court will see it differently than this Judge Sara and say, yes, you know, they clearly had evidence that there was an imminent risk of harm and this was an improper decision. Um, in the meantime, unfortunately, since August, when this went into effect, all of these children have been harmed, grievously harmed in my opinion, but there is hope in other parts of the country too. So this Wisconsin decision that I mentioned yesterday, sure. very, very encouraging, or I mentioned, I think it came out yesterday, very, very encouraging saying that the governor cannot 
just decide that he's going to extend it. He hasn't been granted that authority by the legislature. Even in the Casey v. Lamont decision, the Connecticut Supreme Court decision that came out on Monday, there was something very, very um, encouraging to us, and, and we believe, or, or I believe anyway, that they were referencing cases like, including our uh, school mask lawsuit. In footnote 11, they specifically said that uh, they were not making a ruling on other cases regarding uh, the further extension of Lamont's exec- Governor Lamont's executive powers. Um, and it said, as we discuss here and after, although this is a broad grant of authority and there may well be instances in which a challenger to the governor's continued actions can demonstrate that they have lasted an improper duration, that issue is not squarely before us, and nothing in this opinion should be construed as offering an opinion on that separate issue. So, see, I believe that was a nod directly to us because we have that coming up on appeal, and they're saying we're we're not running a decision yet on that. We haven't closed the door on that yet. So I do still have Mm. some hope. Um, Federal courts have, you know, in many instances been more... um, been more uh, plaintiff friendly on this issue, I should say. Um, yes. You know, look, lo- looking at the issue of executive powers and whether they're unconstitutional. Um, many would argue to file in federal court. I don't know if you're familiar with Pam Popper, but she has litigation in Ohio um, and, you know, specifically on executive orders and the constitutionality in, in federal court in Ohio. And she's had some success there as well. So there, there is some uh, Kentucky federal yeah. court as well. There, I mean, early on, there were some successes. So I think what you're trying to say is, you know, even in Connecticut state court, which is obviously very left, there's maybe a glimmer of hope. So certainly if you're one of the people that have, that are emailing me from Texas and Arkansas with your school districts. So, I mean, isn't there grounds at this point, especially because this is not 12 months ago? Well, maybe we should try this. We don't know. So we got to defer. Well, I mean, we have 12 months worth of data on this. And also this emergency that it takes the wind out of the whole argument because in public, this is so urgent. That was the whole argument that the Constitution goes out the window. Again, I don't know whatever happened to Justice Jackson's, uh, you know, Youngstown, famous Youngstown opinion that there's no uh, emergency exceptions to the Constitution. But 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 even if you would believe there is, but how do you have an emergency 12 months with no end in sight? I think we do have grounds for a federal case, again, either on the EUA statute, the way the FDA designated the mass, obviously discrimination. Like, for example, you know, let's say this. The story I talked about, you know, the, the neurologist that turned down this woman who had facial pain and couldn't wear a mask and really needed to see the person to get a biopsy because there's a cyst and a tumor on her neck. This is in Pennsylvania. I mean, dude, like even stuff that's 100% effective, proven by all this, the, the data, we we always have exceptions and we have, we, we take into account this stuff. How, I, I just don't get it. And, and And in many cases, by the way, they're violating their own orders. Like they do have medical exceptions in the mass mandates, but then they're not, um, adhered to. Right. And actually, I'd like to talk about that, if I may, with regard to how uh, this affects businesses and people that may want to bring suit against businesses or against their employer. Mm. Um, Just a a quick caveat, you know, nothing I say should be construed as official legal advice, because I'm not representing anyone uh, in particular that I'm speaking to in your audience. But I just want to say generally, from my own knowledge of the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, and, you know, many relevant uh, state disability statutes, uh, disability discrimination statutes, 
you still have to provide reasonable accommodations if the person has a disability, they can't wear a mask, um, for a variety of reasons, whether it's a breathing condition, uh, we have uh, victims of uh, sexual trauma that have come to us and said, I can't have anything over my, my nose and mouth, I just can't. Those are legitimate disabilities under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and businesses are required to honor that. It does not mean, however, according to various you know, courts and even the EEOC, federal um, agencies that have looked at this, it does not require that all you have to do is say that and they just walk in and, they can, and you can you know, live your life as, as you did prior, normal. It, many think that it should. Unfortunately, the law is not quite written that way. What they have to do is engage in something called an interactive process. So there's an exception to the ADA that many people aren't aware of. It's called the direct threat to health and safety exception. And in the past, there was a much higher burden on employers, on businesses, to have to show that the person attempting to enter the business posed a direct threat to health sure. and safety. So, for instance, in the 1980s and the early 80s, especially uh, with the um, AIDS epidemic, there were a lot of people that, a lot of businesses that tried to exclude um, gay people from coming in under the uh, you know, supposition that they were going to pose a threat to health and safety. Well, yeah. obviously that was ridiculous because it's not a, an airborne, you know, exactly. HIV is not, a, not an airborne, you know, disease or virus, I should say. Um, so they, uh, the courts, you know, had said in, in, in that litigation that it is not acceptable. That does not, you know, the, the, the business hasn't met their burden of showing that there's a direct threat to health and safety. In COVID times, however, the burden seems to, in my view, have gone much, much lower. That just saying that I believe if you're not wearing yes. a mask, yes. you pose a threat to health and safety, I can exclude you. However, still has to be an interactive process, still have to yep. say, okay, you can't come to the grocery store, but can you, uh, maybe we can deliver them to you or give you curbside pickup. Those have been deemed reasonable accommodations. Yep. Yep. But, but I, I, I do just want to say, it's, that's ridiculous to me. Because unless I am coming in there coughing, sneezing all over that, the, that's, the, that's the, the, my the produce. Point. That's then, my then point. How am I a danger to anyone? Th th this is my point that I think all of us are forgetting that we keep using this public health or power to quarantine. But that was when you prima facie had it or were exposed to it. But let's say a lot of cases, they take your temperature and you don't have temperature. Right there. Let's say you you often. I mean, you have a tremendous amount of people that had it already. They were vaccinated and they're currently asymptomatic. So, you know, anything in law, data matters. And I understand if you say like there's certain particularities that are gray, so we'll defer to always the fascists. Okay, but there's a limit, right? So, part of the problem that we've been doing is we take like an exception, we make it the rule. There could be the asymptomatic, one in a trillion asymptomatic spread. There could be a person that gets it again. There could be a person who's vaccinated and, and, and gets it again. But when you put it together, someone who had it already or is vaccinated and is currently asymptomatic, the even if it's possible, but all the studies have shown the likelihood of that is really very, very, very limited and then you weigh that against the burden on them. And then, you know, again, you look at the HIPAA laws and everything. I just don't understand how this could go on with, with you know, without us saying, I, I feel like nobody has written the lawsuit, and correct me if I'm wrong, saying, time out. Wait a minute. Doesn't this fundamentally violate 
the definition of quarantine, the balancing test, the burden of proof, who it has to be on, recognizing fundamental rights, um, and and then and then the time limit. I mean, at some point, doesn't the time have to matter? Well, of course it does. And this is where it gets murky, though, because different states have different time limits. So in Connecticut, like I said, it's six months. There's a statute going back to 2003 that says, you know, the governor has, once he declares that emergency for any kind of major or serious disaster, which doesn't explicitly say, by the way, in our statutes, does not specifically say anything regarding viruses, infections. That's what I'm saying. It, it, it's about it's about floods, tornadoes, yes. hurricanes, things like that. Okay, fires. But, but regardless, I, I, so he could declare an emergency. It that way. He could right. declare an emergency. So again, you could move around assets of a state where maybe you could say the legislature would have control, whatever. But I'm a human being, and you're controlling my body. It, 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 hasn't this been an entire cottage industry in the legal um, field that? Wait a minute. This is not a matter of the scope of the executive power question. This is a fundamental right. So I could declare an emergency for six months. And we could talk about that. Maybe these statutes are too broad and that's a lot of power. That is a lot of power. But there's power and then there's raping a human being. Right. So you could do what you want. You could put out the wildfire. You could commandeer resources. You could do this. But let's talk about the mass thing for a minute. I, what bothers me is I haven't seen anyone militate against the premise that you could do that to a human being, especially when prima facie there's no um, threat from the person, even before we get into the efficacy of it. So here's what I don't understand. We established an NFIB v. Sibelius that unless you would designate the individual mandate as a tax, you couldn't say that government could regulate the inactivity of a person. Or, or, or say that a person has to take an, uh, an affirmative action, right? They have to engage in a certain action. You know, the question brought up during oral arguments with Scalia and Alito, um, could you force someone to eat broccoli every day? Um, you know, the, the WHO came out with meta-analysis uh, yesterday that uh, ivermectin reduces transmission, reduces uh, mortality by 81%. Um, maybe we should make everyone take ivermectin. I'm just saying you'd actually have more science behind that than mass, of course, where even CDC, even in their mannequin data, it's it's like a small percent. They, you know, they say no one's gonna say 80, it's like 80% transmission, because we see it's spreading everywhere. Um, but no one would say that government could force you to take ivermectin every day, even though yeah. you know that's kind of a one-stop shop, you swallow the pill. Here, you know, you have to have it on you for a eight-hour shift, seven hours a day in school. Um, whatever well, happened... Well, can I just yeah. jump in? They, the government won't say... You're absolutely right, right. They won't mandate you to take ivermectin. They won't mandate you to take hydroxychloroquine. But what they do want to mandate you to do is to take the COVID vaccine, which is experimental, which is under an EUA, emergency use authorization, uh, creating vaccine passports even, where you're not going to be able to travel, enter businesses, um, completely unconstitutional and in in my opinion you cannot force someone to take something into their body in order to engage in everyday life or to travel your your liberty rights your fundamental liberty rights are being restricted in that case uh you're right in in states like connecticut where there's a fundamental right to an education your right to enter uh, to receive an education but they already did it with masks they already did it with masks which are the same eua so why are vaccines different i'm just saying if you say you could do it with the mask 
And I mean, you're not injecting it in the body, but you know, it is on your most sensitive part of your body um, in a more uncomfortable way for a longer period of time. And you're, you know, my, I guess my question is, whatever happened to the right to privacy? Griswold and Roe, um, the, the, the concept, has everyone brought this up in litigation? That if you could say that government could criminalize your breath without any evidence that you even have the virus, even if you already had the virus, then what can the government not to your, do to your body? Is there anything they can't do to you? Literally. What what is the scope of governmental power? I can't think of anything more intimate and meddlesome and officious in a person's human bodily integrity than forcibly covering their mouth and nose. You're absolutely correct, and um, I wish again you're asking me a lot of tough questions, and that's <laughs> great. I I wish I had clear answers to you because I've been scratching my head and beating my head against the wall for the past twelve months plus with these same questions, because I did not expect um, this to sort of unfold the way it has. Um, I don't think there's a huge difference. There is one difference is now you're crossing the barrier of the skin with the vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm hopeful that some courts will see that as different because, okay, now you're entering my bloodstream. Although masks, can cause a whole host of problems, including infections that obviously enter the bloodstream. You, you re-breathe re in your microbes. I mean, that is Correct. a huge, huge issue. But, but um, Brian, what, what would you say to those that throw Jacobson v. Massachusetts at you? Well, they said you can mand mandate a vaccine. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought that up because I've done a lot of research on Jacobson. I've written about Jacobson. I have a blog on the ctfreedomalliance.org. If you click on blog, it'll bring you to my blog post. I've written about it before. So that was a totally different case. You had uh, one vaccine that was being mandated by the city of Cambridge in 1904. Uh, the case was decided in 1905, but it was for a smallpox outbreak, and there was a fine. Okay, it, it, The issue was whether the government could impose this fine as a result of this mandate, whether the police power allowed the government to do this. Now, the now, absolutely, it is true that the, that the U.S. Supreme Court in that case did say that the state does have a police power. Now, you have to look at the context. You have to look at the context. You have to look at the times. Okay? This was um, long before the line of cases that you mentioned a few moments ago, Griswold, Roe v. Wade, the Planned Parenthood case, long before any of that was decided. Okay, so people that are looking at Jacobson in a vacuum are looking at it all wrong because the body of case law that has emerged since then is completely different. Secondly, the part of Jacobson that the, uh, you know, anyone who uses that argument, any of the people in favor of vaccine mandates use that argument, um, they always ignore the crucial part of the Jacobson decision, which is found towards the end of Jacobson. Um, and I'm sure you're familiar with it because you've done uh, some research on this, but if you actually look, the Supreme Court specifically said that it does not, this does not mean that the government can just do anything to strip someone of a fundamental right. Because remember, Jacobson did not involve religious liberty. Jacobson, uh, you know, Henning Jacobson opposed vaccination on the basis that he, he his son, and, and when he had, had, had experienced adverse reactions in the past and didn't want to take it, so it was for health reasons. He never alleged a religious liberty um, you know, defense in that case. 
And furthermore, the court specifically said in their conclusion that this was not going to, this case should not be, um, you know, used to stand for the proposition, and I have a direct quote here, before clo- you know, th- th- that, that you can just do anything with state power. Before closing this opinion, we deem it appropriate in order to prevent misapprehension as to our views, to observe, perhaps to repeat a thought already sufficiently expressed, namely, that the police power of a state, whether exercised by the legislature or by a local body acting under its authority, may be exerted in such circumstances or by regulations so arbitrary and oppressive in particular cases as to justify the interference of the courts to prevent wrong and oppression. Extreme cases can be readily suggested. I would say we are seeing those extreme cases right now. Yep. And the court in Jacobson, I, I love that they use this decision because I'm going to use the decision to say the court in Jacobson specifically said yep. you can't do what you're doing it's right now. It's so with arbitrary to mass where things. you have absurd outcomes. They conj- This whole thing, oh, now you take the mask off. Now you put it like it just doesn't make any sense. All this stuff. Um, I, I used that on March, my column March 25th of last year, <laughs> March 25th, early on. Um, that that exact quote that that's I'm really glad you brought that up and that you're willing to fight that. We're almost out of time. Um, could you just speak a little bit to the Micheline Epstein case? Is the woman in Manhattan who was picking up her daughter or dropping her off at school and um, was caught by someone in the school not wearing a mask outdoors, and the judge used it against her in terms of custody sharing? Yes. So from what I understand, and we're still in the preliminary stages of reviewing all of her uh, litigation history and preparing to help her um, or or the legal team that we work, you know, with or that we've referred this to, I should say, is is reviewing all of that. So we are not a law firm. Uh, We don't represent the plaintiffs themselves. But what we do is try to find them legal assistance. That's one of our missions of the Patriot Support uh, network and again, you can find that on our on our website at wethepatriotsusa.org. There's a link to the Patriot Support Network. So, M- Dr. Epstein, uh, she is a physician, uh, approached us for help uh, because she was standing outside of her daughter's school. This is on the sidewalk. Now, we're not talking about she didn't try to enter the school without a mask. She was standing outside on the curb without a mask on when she dropped her six-year-old daughter off at school. Now, her daughter went in with a mask. She put a mask on her daughter. Her daughter went, but they saw her standing outside in the fresh air, well, as fresh as as Manhattan air can get, I guess, um, without a mask. A school official, from what I understand, one of them, two school officials, one of them a school nurse, came running out with a mask and ordered that she put this on her face. And Dr. Epstein alleges also physically assaulted her, laid hands on her, uh, telling her, to to put this mask on her face because <laughs> of she, course she you could did, touch yeah she did argue right exactly you, you, you it, it's it's such a sin such a crime not to wear a mask but you can touch the other person you assault the other person right um so dr dr epstein refused she did engage in a verbal altercation she did not put her hands on the other on any of the other people and ultimately this was used against her because she's going through a very bitter divorce from what i understand this was used against her to take custody away from her of her six-year-old daughter. She has not seen her six, six-year-old daughter in weeks now. She had to celebrate her birthday alone without her mother because her, her daughter's birthday happened in the last couple of weeks. Um, she has had supervised visitation, court supervised visitation, but she has to wear a mask in her own home 
in order to have that visitation. We believe this is egregious. This is an outrage. We intend to appeal this, uh, or our lawyers intend to appeal this on her behalf and are working with her. And so what we do is we try to find people that okay. are willing to to support this litigation and make donations and also to refer uh, these cases to uh, appropriate legal assistance. And so that's what we do. We're kind of like a network. We mm -hmm. link people up to help them. Um, and again, we have that that information all on our website. I did want to also mention, be, be, before I forget, with regard to the school mask lawsuit, we are still in great need of donations. Uh, that has cost us the litigation expenses we've incurred is well over $100,000 um, in order to fight for these children. So we do have a link on ctfreedomalliance.org to donate to the school mask lawsuit, and we would greatly appreciate any help we could get with that as well. No, exactly, because people need to realize part of the reason why we don't have a lot of lawsuits is that we don't have a lot of lawyers, and the reason we don't is because there really is no, is no money in this. I mean, this is this is a big reason why when the left feels their rights are, you know, their so-called rights are infringed upon, there's an army of lawyers willing to take this stuff, you know, from the ACLU and all their networks. We don't have this. So, right. so this is a big problem, and it's a big deterrent against a lot of lawyers taking up these cases we definitely i mean that story you just said i mean i i need to drink our again folks conservativewine.com is today's uh sponsor i I'm, I'm gonna have to hit the bottle i mean this is really depressing because what what kind of bothers me is again you know me you've heard me over the years i'm a constitutionalist i don't like yeah. creating bs rights that aren't in the Constitution. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, and I can't remember if it was James Wilson or Roger Sherman. It's a quote in my book about you could have a law that's absurd, even a little bit tyrannical, but it's not so um, doesn't go over the line where it's like blatantly unconstitutional to the point where you know a court could grant relief. I, I talk about that in my book, but I guess what bothers me is you know we think okay, it has to be like religious liberty. You close a church. Oh, it's a business that's property. It's Fifth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment. Well, Daniel, what uh, where's the say in the Constitution? I can't put a cloth over your mouth and nose. When you explain it the way you did in that case, like there's one thing if government says under a limited time and a limited place, you're visiting this type of thing, that type of thing, and for this time you wear a mask. Again, regardless of the efficacy. But when we right, in a healthcare facility, for yeah, instance, yeah, healthcare facility, you're visiting someone who's sick, or, so, or, or yeah. nurses and doctors working in a in yeah. an operating room, yeah, yeah, sure. nursing home. Again, again, it doesn't work there. I believe it actually spreads it more, but but whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you take it to the gates of hell, to this point, I don't understand how. Like, I don't give a damn about the church then, and and believe me, I fight for religious liberty. But like to me, something like that. That violates natural law. Like, yeah. like l l let me ask you this. Where does it say in the Constitution that a government can't say you, um, everyone has to ro walk around buck naked? The example I give is, look, there's right-wing terrorism going around all over the place. We have to make sure people aren't armed. Um, everyone has to, has to walk around without clothes. Well, Daniel, it's not, it's not property. It's not a church. Uh, I don't know. Where is it in the Constitution? Maybe government can do that. I mean, am I, am I not on the right track there? No, you're on the exact right track. And there's something called common sense. Certainly, if you're doing something that's harming others, okay? And, and, and by the way, there, there's at least one state that I'm aware of that, that 
allows you to walk around buck naked Vermont is one of them where you can actually do that and it's not against the law so that's up to state remember the tenth amendment says that whatever powers have not been expressly delegated by the people to to congress okay to the federal government are reserved to the states or to the people respectively so uh, you know yeah that's up for states to decide there's nothing in the constitution that regulates the wearing of clothes um so in mass are you know arguably an item of clothing okay so you are mandating that you're restricting a person's liberty plain and simple you are telling a person i mean it's the right to breathe daniel let's think about this did you ever think you would be living in a time where I you had to never. ask permission from from the government to breathe freely i i i can't i i, I literally can't wrap my arms around it. again especially in a litigious time in society where everything that's in affirmative benefit is a right like i have the right to a government benefit medicaid or this and that all here is just freedom from right this is you know thomas and in, in, in obergefell there's there's right to and freedom from a fundamental right at its core is a negative it's like don't tase me bro leave me alone i'm not asking for anything but you're when government puts a positive action on a negative of a human being taken against their body i just for the life of me i don't understand how that is when you say a human to, to be with your daughter you have to wear a mask in your home i mean when, when does this end and i it, it, it scares the heck out of me it scares the heck out of me we're out of time brian where again could people go people are going to flood me with requests you know i know you can't help everyone but you know there, there's people with just terrible stories that need help um where yes. could they go to find help so uh, the primary website should be our national organization, We the Patriots USA. So again, that's wethepatriotsusa.org, and you'll see on the homepage uh, a picture that says Patriot Support Network. There's a link right there, and you can fill out that form. We do have to carefully vet the cases because, again, we get you know hundreds, if not thousands, maybe after this, thousands of requests <laughs> for lawsuits. We will do our best to help as many people as we can, but it depends largely on funding. So to yep. make donations, you can also, on that Patriot Support Network page, there's a link to donate, and there's links other places on the website to donate. That's the biggest thing that's going to drive this, because yep. you hit the nail on the head a few minutes ago when you talked about litigation costs. If money weren't in any any consideration, if, if litigation was free, or if, or if I could just self-fund this, if I had billions of dollars, let me tell you, that's what I'd be doing. I wouldn't be a asking for anyone to, to, to give us anything. I'd just be funding it all myself. Unfortunately, I'm not in that position to do that. So how many people we help is going to depend on what kind of donations we get. We are a uh, 501c3 nonprofit. Um, I know some people are a little suspicious of nonprofits. I've actually had people reach out and say, oh, now why'd you go and become a nonprofit? Now you're just corporate and stuff. But they don't realize that wealthy donors do not donate unless they can get a tax exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's just That's the way the world works. You're not going to get any substantial amount of money unless yep. you can give them a tax write-off. And, and, and um, also, we do, have a, we do have attorneys in this audience, and if, if you want to get hooked up with Brian and help out, create the, a national network to start litigating, particularly, I would say, if you're among the states that are in the 5th and 8th federal uh, circuit courts of, of appeal, um, we need to get cases there, I, I, I would say, to, to tee yeah. them up. Um, those are probably the best ways to do it. Find the best examples of disability cases, denial of service cases, denial of schooling, um, 
this is man I, I i am ticked off but we're out of time thanks for your patriotism brian thanks for being one of the few people to litigate and take up the time and try to create this network you're going to keep us updated over time um we'll stay in touch um i'm going to email you questions i get from the audience folks we're way out of time tomorrow we're going to have steve dace on his new book out number one on amazon um about anthony fauci he really gives the skinny on him this is important to get out so we're going to keep this discussion going tomorrow till then god bless y'all and thank you for listening